we just finished our series on dispensationalism, basically just trying to get an understanding of the continuity of, of our Bible. And uh, tonight I'd like us to start, uh, I want you to limber your fingers up, we're going to be looking at uh, several, more than several different passages, but we're going to start in John, John chapter 4. And again, uh, the message has a several-fold purpose. Um, one is I always love every opportunity I have to illustrate uh, that the Bible is, can be, should be its own best commentary. That if we're going to study the Bible, we should not primarily read books written about the Bible, but we should study the Bible itself. And, of course, the primary example of that is our treasury agents in the United States Treasury. The most counterfeited currency in the world today is uh, the U.S. dollar. And the most counterfeited bill, if I'm not mistaken, is the $100 bill. Uh, and the primary counterfeiter as of a few years ago was the nation of Iran, believe it or not. Uh, the government itself was printing United States $100 bills and passing them off. Uh, this was uh, several years ago. I don't know if they still hold that position or not, but uh, one of them found their way into a church offering here. And we took it in, and the bank teller's counting through and says, Oh, this is a bad one. And what happens? You just lose the money. That's what happens. And, uh, and so... <clears throat> As uh, our, the, the agents are trained, they do not study the counterfeit bills. They study the real thing. Hours, days, weeks with a magnifying glass, just holding it up. So, uh, at times they blindfold them and all they do is feel until they understand what the paper feels like. After the training... They'll slip one in a stack of several uh, uh, real bills and, oh, wow, this one looks so terrible. Well, you and I, we wouldn't do that. We would, if somebody gave you a stack of $100 bills, how many of you would tell that there's one that's weird in the middle? I mean, I've thought that a few times, looking at $100 bill. Oh, but then I'd look at the date. Oh, this is an old one. Somebody's been hoarding this away for years and years. And... Uh, uh, so, anyway, what, what we're talking about here is studying the real thing. So, one of the purposes tonight is to give you a lesson in how to study your Bible, using your Bible. And uh, one of the best tools, I, I did not bring one into uh, the pulpit, is Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. The little joke is that the reason it's called exhaustive is because that's what happens to you if you carry it around. No, actually, uh, it's exhaustive because it has every word in your King James Bible listed, every place it is found, even the thus and with. And, and uh, the only version in English that has that exacting a concordance is our old King James Bible. And uh, at least to the last publishing date I, I am aware of. Uh, and, and if somebody published one for the NIV, I really don't care. Because I don't use it, won't use it, and don't want it. Um, 
And so, and you can get the uh, Strong's Exhaustive Concordance free online, uh, in phone apps, all all those things. It's it's available. You can also, if you don't have one, you want to buy the book. Uh, see Andrew or Hannah, and we'll order one into the bookstore for you. Uh, they're not that expensive anymore. And what we're going to do here is just kind of illustrate a little bit of try trying to understand. Uh, how the Bible works and things. So John chapter 4, and we are just going to take two verses out of the conversation with Jesus and the woman at the well. Uh, as Jesus was talking to her, she was first shocked because he was a Jewish man talking to her as a Samaritan woman, even asking her for the uh, 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 gift of a drink of water, and then Jesus uses the issue of water to segue to move into a discussion of eternal life. And, uh, of course, then Jesus deals with sin, and uh, we find out that this woman had quite a, a long list of public charges against her, uh, as every one of us has a list of hidden in private charges against us, we would not want anyone to know, save God. And But yet God knows every one of them. And then comes the issue of worship. In verse 22, Jesus tells her, Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. So, as Jesus is dealing with this issue of worship, he's telling her, you don't even know what you're worshiping. And I remember uh, in an encyclopedia one time looking through, and it had a picture uh, of a Samaritan priest in, in modern times holding a Samaritan Torah. They have their own copy of the Scriptures. Of course, it is corrupted. It is not the same as our Bible is. But as this priest picked up this huge uh, scroll, he put a veil over his face so that he could not see the scroll. And I went, wow. And, and the caption said the symbolic way of handling the Torah was he was not even worthy to look upon it or something like that. But I'll tell you what it's certainly better illustrated. What Jesus just said right here, you worship, you know not what. How many of you remember going to church and doing things and trying to do things and you had no clue as to what was going on? And yet, because your parents told you, your, your, your grandparents, people you knew, people you respected, you, you tried to do the best you could. Now, here's what Jesus said in the next two verses, and these are the verses of our attention tonight. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, there has been much made uh, of this, these two verses here, of this phrase, worshiping 
God in spirit and in truth. It has absolutely nothing to do with the Bible. Um, there are many people teach that you, you have to, uh, 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 they call it contemplative worship now, I guess, is the new catchphrase. You, you, you just sit there until something hits you. And hopefully it's not your little brother because you weren't looking, right? Uh, 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 until some premonition uh, grabs a hold of your heart. In fact, the, uh, one of the key uh, um, tenets of what we call neo-orthodoxy, orthodoxy being the standard belief, neo meaning a new standard, is that the Bible is really not Scripture until it means something to the reader. Now, I want to challenge you that's not an honest or a biblical approach. The Scripture is Scripture because God gave it to us. And studying the Bible and, and people often well, how do we know which Bible is real? And how do we know that we have the real Bible? And, and, well, that's a different study for a different day. But if you would just allow me uh, the simple statement, history, the true church proves that this book, this old King James Bible, is God's Word. Uh, it is around. Someone told me that... Uh, a member of Islam was was trying to tell me that the Quran is the oldest and the most correct. And I said, no, my New Testament predates your Quran 600 years. Uh, don't don't try this. Uh, you you just have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, the Bible is the oldest book currently in print in the history of mankind. There is. I mean, you you can find uh, uh, what whatever his name was, the Greek poet Homer or whatever, but you have to go to a college bookstore. You can find this book anywhere. And it's God's book, and he's telling us that if we're going to worship God, we're going to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we're going to take just one part of this, and chase it through the New Testament uh, uh, 11 times, 10 times in the Gospels, and one time in the book of uh, Revelation, this phrase, worshipped him, referring to Jesus Christ, uh, is used in our Bible. And one of the ways you can let the Bible teach you and study the Bible is to take a word or a phrase, and follow it through the Scripture. Often, as you're going to see tonight, I hope you'll see tonight, that, that we've got several groupings of verses that as we look at this phrase, worshipped Him in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we're going to find some categories of verses that the verses, even though they're not talking about the same events, are talking about the same ideals. And those will form and help us understand what it means to worship 
Jesus Christ. So limber your fingers if you would. We're, we're going to look at 11 different references uh, here tonight in the next few minutes. Let's go to Matthew chapter 2. And I will try to be careful. Matthew chapter 2. And this is a story, if you're familiar with your Bible, you already know this is the story of the wise men. And I do want to correct you, in the Bible, they are not wise men, one word. They are wise men, two words. And they refer to people who had special knowledge, who studied things. And we come down to verse 11, and when they, the wise men, were Come into the house, not the manger. They saw the young child with Mary, not the babe, wrapped in swaddling clothes, with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so here we have the first mention of this phrase, the first use of this phrase, worshipped him in reference to Jesus. We do not know the number of the wise men. But I promise you, three guys showing up on camels in Jerusalem would not have gotten Herod upset. Uh, They had a large traveling group. Uh, They had enough pomp and circumstance and money and and uh, presence to gain an audience with King Herod simply by showing up. Uh, Stop and think, what would it take to just drive over the George Washington Bridge and say, I want to meet the mayor and be able to do that? I mean, why would you want to meet the mayor? Excuse me, sorry. Uh, Just a... Secondary thought there, but in order to make an appointment, even with the mayor of New York, you would have to have something going on. You would have to have some reason. Uh, you would have to have some, some purpose involved here in order to even get past the security guards, would you not? And these wise men met him. They claimed to Herod that they were seeking the king of the Jews. So that tells us that they already knew Who Jesus is. Amen. Uh, If we understand our story correctly, they had been seeking for him for two years. They had seen the star. They started on their journey. Uh, They did not see the star. Apparently it disappeared. So they came to Jerusalem. Herod immediately calls the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the very same people that 33 years later would be responsible, humanly speaking, for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, you you would think some of them might have had note that Herod had researched the birthplace of the Messiah at the request of these foreign dignitaries. But that seems to have slipped everybody's mind except the Gospels here. And so as we look at this first mention, here's something we see. These men were seeking God. And they saw this sign in the heavens and they deducted and came to understand that 
the Messiah, the King of the Jews, had been born, and they sought him, and when they found him, even though he was a little child, get this picture. Here's a two-year-old child. I mean, we could probably go back to the nursery and bring Felix out and try to illustrate this. A two-year-old child, arguably in his mother's arms, and these foreign dignitaries that had enough presence, power, to demand an audience with Herod and receive it, bowed down on their knees, put their faces to the ground, and open up their treasures and leave them as a gift, as worship to Jesus Christ. Isn't that an amazing story? Does that not teach us maybe a little something about what worship is? Here we have men important enough in the realm of the world and the operating of this world to stop the political goings-on in the city of Jerusalem, the head of that entire area, demand an audience with the king, and here they're stopping and getting on their knees, down on their faces, and presenting gifts. The Bible calls them treasures, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Let's go to Mark chapter 5 and see if we can see a pattern here. Mark chapter 5. How many of you know the story of Mark chapter 5 already? This is the story we call the demoniac of Gadara. This was the man that was not possessed by one demon, but the scripture says a legion of demons, enough to drive 2,000 pigs crazy and have them run off the cliff. And... We come down here in in verse... Uh, well, let's just get the description. Verse 1, And they came over unto the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. Now, verse 6 is our verse of note here. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped. I've often wanted to preach a sermon, I'm not sure that I ever have, on do you treat Jesus as well as the devils do? These were demons, servants of Satan. Rebellion and total eternal rebellion against God. Their end is the lake of fire. And yet, as Jesus walked this earth, this horde of demons was in inside this one a poor individual, and Jesus steps out of the boat, and the demons make this man run and fall on his face and worship Jesus. I 
I don't know if you've guessed it, but our first category is this. They worship him because of who he is. You see, Jesus said, if you're going to worship the Father, you're going to have to worship in spirit and truth. And the first area here was they worshipped him because of who he is. They saw Jesus. They understood who Jesus is. And you have to uh, be patient because you cannot say who Jesus was because Jesus never was. That would be improper theology. And and so we must uh, bend the rules of grammar just a little bit so that we can uh, put forth the truth that Jesus is. He always is. He was, is, 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 and always will be, is. He's present tense. Past, present, and future. Amen? Amen? He's different than any other human being. Let's go to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. Now, this is an interesting story. This is the story of the blind men. The, the disciples ask him and say, Jesus, did this man sin or his parents sin that he was born blind? Now, do you get the question there? How could this man sin before he was born Uh, But there had to be some terrible reason why he was born blind, right? Wrong. Jesus said that the works of God may be manifest in him. And Jesus called him over and healed him and gave him his sight. And, of course, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were all upset because Jesus did this on the Sabbath day. And so they wanted to charge Jesus with breaking the Sabbath. Had he broken the Sabbath? No, not in the least, because in the law, you were allowed to lead your animals to water and give them drink on the Sabbath day. If an animal fell into a pit and was in danger of dying, you were able to do the work necessary on the Sabbath day without breaking the Sabbath to save the animal's life. Or even the Jewish people today, their doctors and And nurses recognize that they are allowed to work and operate on the Sabbath day to save a human life. But they won't push the elevator button to get the elevator to go up between the floors because that's work. And so they program the elevators. How many of you have seen a Sabbath elevator in a hospital? Uh, This is the tradition that's carried on today. Jesus did not break the Sabbath. But yet... After all of this discussion, the blind man was thrown out of the synagogue. He was de-Jewified, if you would uh, allow me to use that term. He was cast out of Judaism. He would never again be allowed to go into the temple and offer a sacrifice for his sins according to the law. Because he had been cut off. He had been cast out by the priest. And yet here we come down... And uh, verse 38, this is the blind man speaking. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Now, let's go back to verse 35, pick up the context. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him... And it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. 
He was not worshiping Jesus because Jesus had given him sight. He was worshiping Jesus because Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. You see, if you're going to worship in spirit and truth, the first thing that needs to happen is you have to understand who God is. And that there are no others. Jesus is not one of many. He is the only God. Uh, people have a problem with the Trinity. And, and uh, they try to say, well, how can you have three gods? No, there's only one God. Well, well uh, uh, but, but it says God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and they have conversations between each other. Jesus prays to God the Father. The Bible tells us that in the work of salvation... Jesus offered himself through the eternal spirit to God the Father. Now, my first statement is always this. If you could understand the Trinity, you'd be as smart as God is. You ain't, neither am I. I believe it because the Bible says so. But if you want something to think about, And this means much more to me than it did early in my ministry. I've been married to my wife over 30 years. I I know a lot about my wife. And she knows a lot about me. We've spent our entire adult life, the last 30 years, getting to know each other. You know what? We're not done yet. Because there are still things to learn. You can spend your whole life trying to get to know one person. It would be a life well spent. But God is telling you, if you had three lifetimes, you still couldn't know all about me. And by the way, you only get one. God is trying to help us understand how big, how great, how fathomless, how he is beyond our comprehending. We believe that the God of the Bible, and turn with me to the only reference we're going to look at outside the Gospels, and that's in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 14. We've got to keep moving here or we won't finish. Now, Chapter 5, I I wish we had time to just go through the whole chapter. But what is happening here is God the Father is illustrating to all that are in heaven the unique position and the unique worthiness of Jesus Christ as he is holding the seven-sealed book in his hand and he commands that a search be made through all of heaven through all of earth, through all the sea, through the entire universe, to find one being worthy to take the book out of his hand. And they don't find anybody. And John, he misses the whole point. He's just not thinking. And he'd be just like you just uh, you and I, if we were there, we'd just be overwhelmed. Our eyes would be bulging and we'd be just going, this is more than I can comprehend. And When he hears that no one is found, he starts blubbering like a baby. It's just too much. 
And uh, God always has someone there standing beside you to help you. And, and he said, stop it! It's in the original. Uh, no, he says, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And then Jesus appears in the midst of the throne. In the midst of the beast, in the midst of the elders. I thought about this. How can you have a circle with two centers? But here we have God the Father in the center of the circle. The throne is in the midst of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders. And the multitudes of heaven gathered around them. And now we have two centers to the same circle. Because the Son appears in the midst of the throne and of the beast and of the elders. Try to figure that one out, my friend. But here's the verse we want. Verse 12, with a, with a, saying with a loud voice, oh, let's, let's go to, um, oh my, uh, verse 10. And has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Now we got the context. Verse 14. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. So, we have Jesus and God the Father standing there together receiving the same worship. That's what heaven's going to be about. The first thing we need to understand about worship is we worship God because He is the only God. There are none like Him. There are none that are even close. There is no difference. Don't go playing with the devil. He is so much greater than you, you will always lose. But I will tell you, the devil and all his power is not anything. Is absolutely nothing compared to the power and presence of the God of the Bible. And we worship him. Because he is. The wise men worshipped him. Because they believed that he is God. The blind man. The demoniac. Even the demons worshipped Jesus. Because they knew who he is. And all of heaven will worship him. So let's go back into the Gospels. Matthew chapter 8. And see if we can find another category. Of how this phrase worshipped him is used. Matthew 8 and verse 2, it says, 
And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leper, leprosy, sorry, was cleansed. Let's go to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 18. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 18. It says, While he spake these things unto them, Jesus was teaching a certain ruler. There came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. How many of you remember the story? He gets to the house. And they are already started the funeral. They are already mourning and weeping and wailing. And Jesus looks at them and says, Weep not, the, 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 the damsel's not dead, she only sleeps. And it says they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. But Jesus did bring her back to life, amen? According to the words of the Bible. Do, do you see this pattern yet? Let's look at one more. Matthew 15 and verse 25. Matthew 15 and verse 25. We have here the story that we call the Syrio-Phoenician woman. She was a woman living in Syria, a Phoenician or Philistine. She was a, a Canaanite, actually. And she came beseeching Jesus... Uh, it says that he tried to enter in by secret, and she announced his presence to all that would listen. The disciples tried to get her to go away. She wouldn't leave. Finally, Jesus comes out, and here is what she does in verse 25. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. You see, the three verses that we just read, these three uses all have something in common, don't they? These three instances, the leper, the, the woman in the story here, and the ruler of the synagogue, all believed that Jesus had the power to meet their needs. They desired Him to do something, but they believed that he could do it. And in that belief, it drove them to worship. The word worship means to get down, to kneel. Uh, one, uh, the, one of the books I looked up in, it says it comes from a word that means to uh, uh, lick the hand like a dog licks its master's hand. Uh, the idea here is the humbling or the giving up of your own ability and thoughts for yourself, being wholly consumed with thoughts for the object worship. And you want know there are people that worship their cable box, are they not? You want to find out how? Just get out a pair of uh, shears and threaten to cut it and see what happens to you. I mean, I mean there'd, be, there'd be blood on the floor before you cut that cable. Uh, because that... that and. Uh, uh, I'm, I remember seeing a sign as a young boy saying, uh, you can 
You can steal my money. You can steal my wife, but don't touch my truck. And I'm going, boy, there's something wrong with that thought. But uh, there are people who worship all kinds of things, are they not? Because they believe that whatever it is that they're worshiping has power to do something for them. Why do you think all these Hollywood starlets and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I don't know what a male starlet would be. I don't think it makes much difference anymore, does it? Um, But anyway, they sell their souls to do the most ridiculous things on a screen because it's going to give them something that will help. They worship. It's... Worshiped him is not only used of Jesus Christ. It's used several other ways in the Bible. But tonight we want our emphasis here. The first is because he is God. The second is because they believe that he has the power to do something that they desperately need done. And then let's go to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, and, uh, oh, there we go. No wonder it wasn't reading right. There we go. 14, and this was when the disciples were in the boat, and Peter had walked on the water, it tells us here, and we get to verse 33. It says, Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. What had Jesus just done? Well, number one, he just scared the living daylights out of the disciples. He put them in a boat, had them row across the boat. Six hours later, about three o'clock in the morning, he comes walking on the water. Now, could you imagine... Now. If someone did that today, we'd say, okay, where's the trick? Uh, But they didn't have CG in those days. Uh, You didn't have holographic images. You didn't have movie cameras and all of these things. It was completely foreign to them. In some ways, I, I envy generations before us who have not had their sensory perceptions. Anything you can imagine, they can put on a screen today. But the disciples didn't have that opportunity. And Peter says, if it's you, bid me to come walk on the water. And they saw Peter get out of the boat and walk on the water. Not for long, mind you, but he did walk on the water. And the storm stopped. They were at the land where they were. They get out. They fall on their faces and say, you are the Son of God. Let's look at another one. In fact, the rest of our references are going to deal with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And verse 9. And we will cover this on Easter Sunday. uh, So we're not going to deal with the whole thing today. But Jesus, the angels that appeared to the three women, Mary was left at the tomb. The two that were left, saw the angels, and they said, Go tell the disciples. Verse 9 says, And as they went to tell the disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. 
They worshipped Jesus because of what he had done. Just like the disciples had seen him walk on the water, they had seen the resurrected Lord. If we'll just skip down a few verses here to verse 17. It says, uh, verse 16 context, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Most people believe that this was the same uh, reference in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when Paul says, Above, he was seen of above 500, most of which are still alive today. That this would have been that uh, same time. The, the uh, 11 were there, it says, but some doubted. They saw the resurrection, resurrected Lord. They worshipped Him. In Luke 24 and verse 52 says, And they worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They had just seen Jesus ascend into heaven. So, uh, I want to give you, uh, uh, tie, try to tie this up here. We go back to John chapter 4, and it says the hour will come, and now is, that we're supposed to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. These 11 verses that we looked at here talk about worshiping Jesus. Number one, because of who He is. Number two, because he has the power to change my life. Number three, because of the great things he has done. You see, in John chapter 4, the word spirit is not capitalized. Though there is an inference there, there's certainly an application in many other verses of the Bible that we should worship God under the influence, the control, at the direction of the Holy Spirit of God. It's talking about the spirit that is within man, our soul, the essence of our being. Why do people worship Hollywood? Because it fills them so completely they can't think about anything else. Isn't that true? If we're going to worship Jesus in spirit, don't use the word awesome around my oldest son, Peter. He will always correct you. Awesome should only refer to God. And what the word awesome means is full of awe. Now, the truest definition is if Pizza fills you full of all and makes you lose track of everything but that piece of pizza. Well, then, I guess you're using it correctly, but if you're going to worship a piece of pizza, there's really something wrong with you. Would you agree with me on that? But when is the last time that you understood enough about God, even thought about things the Bible tells us about God to the point to where it drove everything else out of your mind and your understanding. That's worshiping in spirit, my friend. You see, that's why the wise men spent two years of their life wandering through 
whatever paths it took till they found that little boy in a house in Bethlehem and they worshipped him. The demons knew who he was. And they knew one thing. There is one rule in this universe. You do not disrespect God and get away with it. You just don't do it. Fourth commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Be careful. Worship in spirit. It is the essence. It is the real you. We're not talking about the difference between soul and spirit here. We're just talking about the real you on the inside. In truth. How many of you have ever done something that you believed was absolutely correct only to find out you could not be more horribly wrong? Has anybody else ever done that? I mean, it just looks like the red wire and the black wire ought to be connected together. How many know what happens when you do that? Don't, don't, don't ever do that. I melted down a whole switch box one day. It it was bad. I was doing what I thought was right. I mean, the wire was there and I just hooked it up. And when it turned on the breaker, it melted down the main. And, uh, oh, man, my mom had to spend a lot of money to get that fixed. I felt so bad. I'll tell you what, you can think you're doing right. But if you're going to worship in spirit and in truth, number one, you'd better find out what truth is. Here's the truth. The Bible will direct you into truth. Jesus, the living truth. Bible, the written truth. Jesus, the living word. The Bible, the written word. You cannot separate the two. If you're going to worship in spirit and in truth, and by the way, you you have to be true to truth, to be in truth. And I'm not trying to play on words, but I want you to think about that. Because you can have the truth and not follow it. Then you're not in the truth. God has given us an objective faith. Meaning that you and I And every human being that lives are going to be measured by the same standard of truth. That we can measure ourselves. Jesus said, by their fruits, ye shall know them. That's one of the reasons I reject the purpose-driven life, the purpose-driven church. is because the fruits that book have produced are not godliness, but more worldliness. You see, if you're going to worship in spirit... And in truth, it's got to be all of you, not just part of you. It's not just something you do on Sunday. It's something you are. And the Bible determines what that 
are that you is, is. Okay? Is it okay to play with grammar tonight? I mean, it does help get the point across, doesn't it? You see, they that worship Him, they that worship the Father, the Father seeketh such to worship Him, Jesus said in John chapter 4, in spirit and truth. They worshiped Him because of who He is, because they believed He had the power to change their lives, and because of the great things that He has done. We worship God because He is the only way of salvation. I would hope and pray the reason you are in church tonight is because you want to understand more about worshiping the God of this book called the Bible. And I pray that our Bible study would give a little more focus to what our worship really ought to be. And all God's people said, let's pray.